in the first sermon I ever preached here, my candidating sermon back in February, I issued a challenge. I asked you all to dream impossible dreams, to turn loose your imaginations and approach God with openness and humility and accept whatever it is that He was calling you to. In many ways, this week, I want to follow that up with the more practical side of things. One of my favorite quotes says, I'm a great believer in luck. I find that the harder I work, the more of it I have. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that says, if you wish to be happy for one hour, get drunk. If you wish to be happy for three days, get married. If you wish to be happy for eight days, kill your pig and eat it. But if you wish to be happy forever, learn to fish. I don't know how true any of that is, but I do know that we live in a society that has mixed views on work. On one hand, we have a nation of workaholics, people working 70, 80 hours a week out of a driving compulsion to get ahead. People who get into work early and stay late and bring their jobs home with them. And this is one of those times I'm preaching to myself because this is something I've always done. My response to most problems in life is simply to work harder. So we have this nation of people who are constantly on the go, constantly working. But on the other hand, we seem to do all of this so we can get to the point of no longer having to work. Retirement is the goal. Freedom 55. There's a great story about a father who kept bringing his work home with him. And his first grade son asked him why, and his father explained that, well, he just couldn't get it all done during the day. And so the boy thought for a moment and then said, well, then why don't they just put you in a slower group? Throughout my message today, I'm going to be quoting many different sources. And when I say many, I really mean it. And so if something sounds like I'm reading it or that it's not my words, that's probably because I am reading it. And if you ever want a, an annotated copy of my sermon, you can ask for them. Over the years, I'm sure we've all heard many sermons about work. And I'm sure that we've also heard many sermons about worship. But I want to try and address both. Specifically, I want to address work as a response to worship. And if you were here back in February, then you heard me speak about how God seems to assign us holy mischief once we have truly worshipped Him. And so what do we do when that happens? How many times have we heard people say that miracles don't happen anymore? Why is it that we tend to believe that something isn't miraculous simply because God used us to accomplish it. <clears throat> we pray and we beg God to perform miracles. We pray and then we wonder why nothing is happening. And perhaps it's simply because He's waiting for us to accomplish those miracles. If we're going to pray for God to move a mountain, then we better be prepared to wake up next to a shovel. If we're going to ask God to do something, we have to be prepared for Him to do it through us. He might do it at great expense to us. In many cases, that expense will be exhausting work, difficult work, possibly controversial work, but it will definitely be work. 
People are tired. And I want to acknowledge this up front because this is important. This congregation has gone through a difficult time. People have been filling holes and stepping into empty spaces to make sure work gets done. And I want to honor that. And I want to be clear that I see that. And there is a time and a place for rest that is not only something that God allows us, but actually commands of us. And that is for another sermon, another time that we will get to. And so if you are tired, I understand. Sabbath is good. and You deserve rest. But it's also important that we be faithful to God's calling. There's a song that plays on the radio sometimes that says this. I woke up this morning, saw a world full of trouble now. Thought, how'd we ever get so far down? How's it ever going to turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven. I thought, God, why don't you do something? I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty and children sold into slavery. The thought disgusted me. So I shook my fist at heaven and said, God, why don't you do something? He said, I did. I created you. If not us, then who? If not me and you, right now, it's time for us to do something. If not now, then when? When will we see an end to all this pain? It's not enough to do nothing. It's time for us to do something. I'm so tired of talking about how we are God's hands and feet, but it's easier to say than to be. Live like angels of apathy who tell ourselves, it's all right, somebody else will do something. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of life with no desire. I don't want a flame, I want a fire. I want to be the one who stands up and says, I'm going to do something. We are the salt of the earth, we are a city on a hill, but we're never going to change the world by standing still. We've all heard prayers that are a laundry list of requests. And if we're being honest, we've all prayed these sorts of prayers. We say, Lord, do this or do that. Help me with this or help me with that. And putting aside that that's not how God taught us to pray, we are blessed that we still serve a Lord who hears us no matter how imperfect our prayers may be. But here's the thing. Whether we have one request or many petitions in our prayers, we have to be prepared for God to say to us, okay, I agree. Now go do it. Because plans are only good intentions unless they immediately degenerate into hard work. Many hungry, hurting, invisible, disregarded, brutalized people are that way, not because God has yet to move, but because the people of God have been reluctant to. We often pray for God to move in our midst, but we do not pray often enough for God to move us. See, everyone has enough faith to do nothing. But that's not the kind of faith that we've been called to. God is not a sled dog who's going to pull us around while we yell mush. If we truly want to see God's will done on earth, then we have to be prepared to help bring it in whatever way we are called to, no matter how big or small it may seem. Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left behind by those who hustle. There are people 
Good Christian people, God-fearing people who say miracles just don't happen anymore. They're a thing of the past. God may be capable of them, but he hasn't performed one in a long time. And with all due respect to people who think that, I'm here today to tell you that that is simply not true. God performs miracles every single day. God does the impossible all the time. Perhaps the fact that these miracles are so common is the reason why they are so often overlooked. The miracles that happen daily happen through us. And I know that that sounds prideful to say, but it's pride in Christ and not in ourselves, and pride in Him is never misplaced. It's really quite a thing to fathom. Every single day, billions of people across the globe pray for a miracle. You have the chance to be that miracle. The world will either be better or worse today simply because you are in it. Because the same God that we credit with the stars and the sea and the butterfly's wing created you. He looked at the world today and decided that it needed you in it. Why? What is it that he's asking of you today? If you're going to pray for God to move a mountain, then you'd better be prepared to wake up next to a shovel. After all, why is it any less miraculous for a mountain to move spontaneously or through years of toiling by one person to do so? Why does expediency equate to miraculous in so many of our minds? Even during his time on earth, Jesus rarely performed miracles unless it was through another person. And I am here to tell you that God wants to do miracles through you. He wants to use you. We are the body of Christ. But there's another popular song that says, but if we are the body, why aren't his arms reaching? If we are the body, why aren't his hands healing? Why aren't his words teaching? Why aren't his feet going? I'm sure most of us have heard the expression, when God closes one door, he opens another. And I can't overstate how much that statement bothers me. It sounds comforting, but it's really a hollow expression. Putting aside the fact that there's absolutely no biblical evidence for it, it bothers me for another reason. It bothers me because God can and will open doors, but sometimes we have to be willing to get up and open the door ourselves. Sometimes we have to be willing to get up and try the knob. Doors rarely fling open by themselves. Now, I know that most times when Christians use that phrase, they mean it with the best of intents. I'm not here to chastise anyone. I'm guilty of using it. Usually when we use it, we're trying to reassure someone that one chapter in life is over and perhaps that's God's will. And in many cases, I think that's needed encouragement. But the thing about God's will is this. I strongly believe that too often we view it as a path. And we come by this honestly because the Bible speaks so much of the righteous path and staying on the straight and narrow. And so as we seek to follow his will, we compare it to a path for understanding. And we get this idea that God's will is linear. 
But the great Gary Nelson, the, the president of Tyndale University and Seminary, once taught me that God's will is less like a path and more like a park. God's will is a park that is meant to be explored. And sometimes you're in the meadow, and sometimes you're in the forest, and sometimes you're playing on the swing of the playground, and other times you're in a community in a picnic. I'm certainly not suggesting that God doesn't have a plan for each and every one of our lives. He most assuredly does. And therein lies another one of the great paradoxes of our faith. We believe both in free will and predestination. But it's, it's liberating and helpful for us to turn loose our imaginations and stop thinking about the will of God as simply a binary thing, as simply an A or B choice. The will of God is a park meant to be explored, and we find ourselves in it, and we find our place in it. Proverbs tells us that all hard work brings a profit. Imagine the profit of prayerful, God-inspired work. Because if you commit to the Lord whatever you do, He will establish your plans. Prayer leads to action. Our current Pope says it this way, first you pray for the hungry, then you feed them. That's how prayer works. You explore and discern God's will, and then you act. Now, God loves us perfectly, and so I'm sure he would never condescend like this, but I always have this image of a God who rolls his eyes at us a lot. And probably he does this a lot when we quote Isaiah. And we say, here am I, Lord, send me. And then we continue to sit there. Here am I, send me. And, oh look, it's lunchtime. Here am I, send me to my couch with a bowl of chips while the baseball game just happens to be on. No. As, we, as I preached about back in February, the reason that that passage is so powerful is because of how unreservedly Isaiah cries out, here am I, send me. Full stop. No caveats, no excuses. Isaiah understood that if you're going to pray for God to move a mountain, then you'd better be prepared to wake up next to a shovel. And we all make excuses. Age seems to be a common one. I'm too old or I'm too young. I've got news for you. No one is ever excused from the work of the Lord. No one is too old or too young. I've heard many people say, I've put my time in. It is time for young people to get involved. And I certainly agree that it is time for young people to get involved, but that doesn't excuse anyone else. And then I hear from youth all the time who say that they're too young and they'll help out when they're older. Nope. Now's the time. Now is the time for all of us. The fields are ready. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The fields are as white in the world, the Scriptures tell us. And the Scriptures tell us that it is not our neighbors who are to be the laborers. It's us. Everyone has something they can do, something they can offer. Don't wait for the person next to you. 
And a word of caution here. We rarely look back at our younger selves and determine that we were wiser then than we are now. So proceed humbly. <coughs> Excuse me. But proceeding out of humility doesn't mean not acting. What I'm getting at is that we cannot use our perceived status or our place within the church body as an excuse to wait for someone else to do the work. We can curse the darkness, or we can be the ones who get up and light a candle. And the more candles we light together, the brighter it gets. We often look around and the grass seems greener elsewhere. But I have a not-so-earth-shattering secret to share with you. The grass is greenest where it's watered. And someone has to do the watering. And so what's better, to seek greener pastures or to tend to the pastures that we've already been given? I came across a story while I was researching and meditating on this sermon, and I have to be honest, I don't know how true it is. So if it is true, fantastic, and I rejoice for these people. If it is not, then let's use it as a case study. There was a, city, there was a church of about 200 people in the inner city somewhere in the U.S. that discerned that God was calling them to help the homeless in their midst. They felt called to open up a shelter. And so for years they fundraised, and once they'd had enough money, they did their homework and diligently researched and hired a consulting firm and an architectural firm and a contractor. They were careful to hire only the best. They waited, and they waited, and they waited. And then one day the church received a letter, and it was a lawsuit. It seems the contractor had not been paid in quite some time, and in addition to packing up and leaving, he was suing them for lost wages. The consulting firm had taken a large portion of their money and then promptly gone bankrupt, left them on the hook for paying the architect and the contractor. And when the dust settled, the church had used almost all of their funds to pay everything owing. What they were left with was a large pit next door to their property and no money. So the board held an emergency meeting to determine what their next steps would be. And no consensus was reached. They prayed and prayed together. And the only thing that they could agree on was that they still felt called to complete the project. How they were going to get there was a whole other matter. After that meeting, the pastor hung his head as he walked to his car. And before getting in, he looked over at the pit. He decided for some reason that the right thing to do would be to go over and pray over the site. So he walked over and climbed down a ladder. Then he noticed something. When the contractor had left, it seems he'd taken all the equipment except for one thing. There in the middle of the pit was a wheelbarrow. For some reason, the pastor decided that he should go over and sit in this wheelbarrow as he prayed. He just felt it seemed appropriate. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Then he said as he prayed, he began to feel restless. And it occurred to him that he was just sitting there. He was praying, but not doing anything. In his words, as I found, he said, I was just an idiot in a wheelbarrow in a suit and tie. So then he sensed God say more clearly than ever, not in any grand or dramatic way, but very clearly, 
He heard God say, get out of the wheelbarrow. You are no good to me there. It was only then that he realized wheelbarrows are meant to be pushed, not sat in. So he looked around and he saw a pile of debris. And it was late, but he figured if he worked hard enough, he could clear it all. So he put his head down and went to work. And after a couple of minutes, one of the board members saw what he was up to and came over to join him. I'm sure you all see where this is going. Before long, the entire leadership team of the church was at it, most of them still in dress clothes. Once they cleared the pile, they gathered together and prayed over the site. Then they decided that until they could come up with a plan, they'd continue to meet every day to discuss things and to plug away at any jobs that they could find. So the next day they met, and someone brought a friend who was a contractor. And he gave them a list of things that could be done over the next week. That week they were joined by other members of the church and by friends and family. After a few days of this, one of the men from the church mentioned that he used to work as a contractor, but it had never occurred to him to offer his services. So he took charge of organizing things. He called in favors and asked friends for help. People from the community took note of the daily volunteers and the weekly work parties, and they started coming out in droves to help. The children and seniors took care of meals and keeping everyone hydrated and kept track of volunteers. The pastor said that he realized that they had been called to something, but that they had outsourced it. Seeking to be good stewards, they had instead taken their calling and asked others to fulfill it. But they had been called. In less than three months, this church of about 200 completed the entire project themselves and spent less than $1,000 of church money. And it was a good thing that they saved all that money because they would need it for their next project. Because of the witness that this project provided in the community, their church had more than doubled in size and they would need to renovate their sanctuary. The pastor was very clear that this time they would make sure from the beginning that they didn't outsource it. Now again, I don't know how true that story is or if it's one of those stories that has a grain of truth and has been embellished, but I think it's important for us to take to heart nonetheless. All because one man realized that wheelbarrows are not meant to be sat in. They're meant to be worked with. It seems to me that they prayed for God to move a mountain, and then they woke up next to a shovel. And so my challenge to you today is exactly that. What are you called to? What are you called to be in life? What are you called to do here at Musselman Baptist Church? What are you as a church called to? What are we as a church called to? Spend time in prayer and in worship if you haven't already. And then get out of the wheelbarrow. Pray, truly pray for God to move mountains and then pick up the shovel that you wake up next to and get to work. God has impossible things in store for you and for me and for this church and this community. Perhaps he has just been waiting on us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we join you in the work you are already doing. We celebrate it. and We ask that you would help us discern our place 
in that work. And that once you have shown and revealed that to us, we ask then that you give us strength and perseverance and dedication to run the race you have laid out for us. Give us purpose. Give us stamina. And let us not be afraid of ambition, of what you have called. Let us not use uh, excuses like that is just too much. I pray a blessing upon this church and, and this community. Help us to pick up our shovels and to get to work, to the work that you would lay out for us, I pray. Amen. And so now, the Spirit of God is upon you and has anointed you. You are the salt of the earth and you bring light to the world. You are not too young or too old. You are not too rich or too needy to bring good news to the impoverished, to give a hand to the brokenhearted, and to live out freedom and pardon through the gifts you have been given. So remember to pack peace in your toolbox, hope in your briefcase, love in your lunchbox, and may integrity, honesty, and joy be your designer of choice. As you pick up the shovel you awake next to, do not be frightened, for you are never alone. The God in whose image you are made will walk with you and guide you today, tomorrow, and every day. May God bless you as you go in his peace.